for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. As I kind of opened up just a, just a second ago, just talking about the fall weather and the coolness, uh, Lindsay and I were at our house yesterday, and we had all the windows open and the door, you know, the screen door and everything. And fall is in the air; it's our favorite time of year, and uh, be, and that often time is a prelude to the holidays. And during the holidays, I've made it um, an intentional effort to read nonfiction because. Uh, I'm going to go geeky with you here in a little bit, okay? But, uh, but I don't typically read nonfiction very often, and so I've tried to, during the holidays, read some nonfiction over the last several years. And the, the uh, kind of the thing I've been coming back to over the course of the last two, two and a half years is, is reading some Tolkien. And so I'm going to do my best to introduce uh, the sermon this morning with some Tolkien imagery. And so I know Joshua Harrison is not here this morning, so he is my main one that will correct me here. But I do know there are very, a lot of other uh, Tolkien uh, scholars in here. So forgive me for where I butcher this. I often need to look at the glossaries at the back of the book because I have no idea what's going on half the time. Um, but as I said, I've been reading Tolkien over the last several years, and, um, and one of my favorites uh, one of my favorites of Tolkien is that you all are familiar with. It's still in the top ten uh, of films over uh, of all time, uh, and that is the Return of the King. It's over ten years old now, and yet it's still uh, International Movie Database uh, still has it ranked in the top ten uh, movies of all time. And obviously, you know, if you're you're a bookie like me, or even more more so like me, I'm sure. Uh, the book's always better than the movie, but the movie itself is even in the top ten. And the basic plot of this movie traces, I think, just Tolkien is tracing some great things, uh, gospel, some gospel threads through, through this whole story of all of his stories, but especially in this one. And so I've tried to attempt in my, in my attempting, again, to kind of trace where this, this kind of plot, main plot. And so what you see in it is that the stewards of Gondor... So you've got this steward who is kind of a sloppy guy. He's not, he's not someone who's actually admirable in any sense. Uh, he's actually a poor leader. And, and so we've, we watch as the stewards of Gondor watch over the throne until it can be reclaimed by the rightful king of Gondor, uh, an heir of Elendil. And so, uh, you, as you, so if, you've, if you are familiar with the movie and you see this guy in Gondor on the throne, he is the 25th generation of stewards during that lineage who is waiting, who is kind of installed there in that place, waiting for the rightful king to take his, his throne. And during that 20, those 25 generations before, again, if Hopefully you're familiar with this, this isn't a spoiler, but Aragorn comes and is coronated the true king and installed again. It's, again, 25 generations before this happens. And so when you think about this, 25 generations, darkness has loomed 
evil has prevailed and the people of Gondor have sort of become disenchanted or have become numb or just kind of you know, acclimated, if you will, with the things as they're going. And so they have lost kind of the hope of what could be and have just kind of gotten into this business as usual kind of thing, okay, with, uh, with the steward ruling over them. And so there seems to be this kind of hopelessness uh, during the whole movie, even especially among the steward. And so 25 generations it takes for the rightful king to come, and when he does, his return marks defeat, the defeat of evil, the destruction of the oppressive ring of power, and, uh, and ultimately the thriving and unity of the people. Um, and he speaks this weird elvish language too. So, um, But here's what I love about this story, is that all good stories allude to the good story. And so Tolkien's fictional story hints at a true story of a coming king and his kingdom. And that story is told to us in the Word of God, the Bible. And so uh, that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm going to bring a little bit of youth into a Sunday morning, if I can, uh, a little bit. So don't worry, you're not going to have to eat any weird stuff or do any weird games or get messy or anything like that. But uh, what we have been looking at on Wednesday nights over the course of five to six weeks is this theme of the kingdom of God. Uh, And Matthew is... Of all the synoptic gospels, which are the four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, excuse me, the, the synoptic gospels are actually Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John it was written later. Uh, they, are, they all emphasize different things and different perspectives, but Matthew is primarily writing to a, a Jewish audience, and his main theme is to trace the royal lineage in his announcement of Jesus as the king. He's the descendant of David, right? And if you know anything about Israel's history or Jewish history or biblical history, King David is a big deal, right? And so the announcement of his descendant in Jesus coming is a big deal. And so Matthew is emphasizing this. This is one of the chief concerns of of his writing uh, and his purpose in teaching. And Jesus himself if you read throughout the, uh, the, the gospel accounts, you will find his consistent and central theme in his teaching is this idea of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so it's the central teaching of Matthew and his emphasis, and it's the central teaching and purpose of Jesus and his ministry and uh, teaching as well. And so, uh, so what, Matthew, what Jesus does is he says he's come to fulfill and announce the kingdom of God and also come to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so we would do well to understand Jesus' teaching on this idea of the kingdom because it frames our understanding of the gospel message and also our implications of how we live as those in the people through gospel uh, application. And so 
so this familiar passage that we're going to look at this morning is, uh, is, is no exception in that. And it is a prayer that we most often are familiar with that is recited. It's often known as the Lord's Prayer, but um, it's better, uh, better actually understood to be the model prayer. And so that is going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13 is where we're going to camp out this morning. And so if you haven't already turned there, uh, go ahead and flip on over to Matthew 6, 7 through 13. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible and you're here this morning and you're visiting, we want to say welcome. Uh, but also, if you don't have the Word of God or copy of the Bible, there are some underneath, uh, underneath your pews here. And uh, if you want to follow along in those, we're going to be on page 811. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, feel free to take that one with you and consider it a gift from us as well. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And this is the main point that we want to, I want us to shoot at tonight. Or this morning, it's dark in here, okay? I'm used to teaching at night, okay? Um, it's this, the longing and calling of the kingdom is appropriated in every aspect of the life of the Christ follower. And so let's, let's jump right in. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I'm going to continue through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, the main point I want us to look at as we consider the kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching in this central and familiar passage is that the longing and calling of the kingdom is appropriated or intentionally and directly applied and allocated throughout the life of the Christ follower in every area. And so, in other words, the kingdom of God, the kingdom people are identified by their kingdom longings in their submission to their king. That's a lot of kings, I know. But I'll say it one more time, that kingdom people are identified by their kingdom longings in their submission to their king. And this submission is displayed in the longings of their prayers, is what Jesus is getting at. And so the background of Jesus' teaching in this passage, again, he is teaching on prayer. And so the context of verse 7 and prior show us that Jesus is teaching what prayer should look like. He's teaching his disciples an example of how prayer should be approached, of the way that, in which they should come about approaching God in prayer. And he mentions two different opposing views of prayer. He says that they're both wrong, the hypocrites and the pagans. And he describes, uh, he doesn't go into detail into what they particularly look like, but he does give us this understanding. He says that prayer is not about memorization or resuscitation, not resuscitation. Nobody's passed out yet. All right, he does resuscitate people, but or incantation, 
but it is expressed in a deep personal communion with God. So the pagans, as well as the hypocrites, had prescripted, uh, scripted prayers uh, that they were to say at all different seasons and in different, different kind of backgrounds. And yet it was even, especially in the pagan practices, it was a repetitive thing, thinking that they would essentially flatter the God enough to where he would act. And Jesus says, in your praying, do not be like that. Do not think that because you, you say these, uh, these prayers from rote memory or, or your incantations are going to move God to act in a certain way because that's the way the hypocrites and the pagans think of. They're insincere. Their heart is not in this. They're doing it for a means to an end. But you approach God as your father and as a deep expression of communion with him. And so again, often labeled the Lord's Prayer, uh, it is actually a model prayer. Because this, it would be completely against his main point in teaching this, is a prayer that is not meant to be a scripted prayer for us just to, to announce in any sense and think that if we have to say it specifically this way in order to see God's will and work be done. And so what's funny, what's kind of silly and ironic about it is that how often do you see this prayer used? Is tagged on at the beginning of a sporting event or any other thing where there's an insincerity of heart in, in perhaps the, the way the prayer is even said. Not that you should not use this prayer, but the way in which it's often used is completely contrary to the main point of what Jesus is getting at. And so he's saying to them, don't focus on your repetitiveness or your memorization or this incantation. Approach God in deep communion with him as a father. This is my desire for you. And verse 9 is the one that gives us this understanding. He says in verse 9, pray like this. He's to, to suggest that this is a model to be emulated and expressed in the attitudes and con the concerns that should, uh, should, that should guide Jesus' disciples, but it's not one that's meant to be completely done by, from rote memory. It is a model to be done that is to be emulated. And so what Jesus is setting before us is six petitions that frame the identity and desires and in those desires, the purposes of who God's, God's people are meant to be and how they are meant to see him. And so in the prayer of Jesus, in the model prayer, is within us an understanding of what kingdom identity is and what kingdom longing instills us to be. All right? And so, uh, so in these six petitions that frame or kind of make up the structure of this particular passage, the first three focus on God, and the last three focus specifically in relationship to God on the disciples. And so these six petitions, again, display the heart of the identity of a Christian and the longings therein. And so in these six petitions, I want us to look at markers of kingdom identity in the model prayer. So, what does it mean to be in the kingdom? What does it mean to live as a citizen or a son, better yet, as Jesus described it, of the kingdom as a result of this prayer? So markers of kingdom identity in the model prayer, and I have three of them for you. 
The first one is an acknowledgement for the supremacy of God. <clears throat> I had to get some Piper-esque in there and throw in, he uses supremacy on everything. Uh, but it's, I could think of no better word here. That uh, in this passage, uh, in this prayer, Jesus is emphasizing that there's an, ex- an exclusive yet personal address to God. He is what? Holy and yet can be also referred to as Father. So juxtaposed against the prayers and practices, the, in, the insincere ropeness and repetitious prayers of hypocrites and pagans mentioned earlier, you have this prayer. And how does it begin? Our Father. Our Father. The model prayer begins addressing the sovereign of the universe intimately as a father as a father don't miss this this is rich here we see just the privilege of intimacy that Jesus calls us to be in disciple as disciples in our relationship with God and so no matter what your understanding of your relationship to your father may be whatever brokenness that shadow may be understand this that the God of the universe is meant to be addressed and seen as a loving, benevolent Father. And so here we see just what God is inviting us into through giving us His Son, Jesus. And this is what Jesus calls us to be first and foremost as children of the Father. In John chapter 1, verse 12, the very beginning of John's Gospel, it says this, that those that whom received Jesus and believed in Him... He gives the right to become children of God. He gives them the right. We have no other right before God but His just wrath. And yet, in His sons, in His gracious love, He has given us a right to be called the children of God. Don't miss the weight of this, the way that we might be able to approach the God of all heaven as children. As one theologian um, wrote this, um, one of my favorite passages, uh, or quotes rather, to describe this, J.I. Packer, he writes this, uh, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as a father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well. Because this is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. This is at the very center of what Jesus is calling us to. As the Son of God, he is giving us the merit of the firstborn that we might be children of God. That we would approach him this intimately. And so Packer says... If this is not the foremost motivation of your praise and of your worship and of your prayers and your whole outlook on life, you've missed the boat, he says. Because this is what it truly, this is, at the, this is Christianity 101. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is to be his child. What a glorious, glorious grace he invites us to enjoy. And if your father owns the universe, how secure is your your future here? 
It is very, very secure. And so he says, approach God this way. This is how I've come that you might know God. Notice, secondly, um, in this, underneath this first point, that the children's approach to God leads to their regard to him. You know, um, if you've ever been around children who, um, who love their dad, they love to brag on their dad, right? Um, if you've ever seen, uh, if you've ever kind of babysat or kind of been around young boys particularly, or, or young kids, they are talking up their dad. He, he can bench press 800 pounds. You know, he's, he's, you know, they're bragging on all this stuff, and you're, you, you're like, I'm pretty sure that's Iron Man or Captain America that you are thinking is your dad. Uh, but nonetheless, they celebrate their dad. They love making much of their dad because he's their hero. He, they want to be just like him, right? And such is the way that God's children approach him in his, the regard for his name. That's the second part of this. He says that not only do the children uh, approach God in an intimate way, but they have a personal regard for their father's name. The desire of the children is for the hallowing of their father's name. Now, hallowing is not typically a word that we use every day. I didn't get up this morning and decide I was going to hallow something. But the hallowing of God's name means not to make God's name holy, but to, uh, but actually to acknowledge God's name as what it really is, is holy. And so the name of God was actually a representation of his nature and his character. And so, again, um, even, we even see this, if you, um, again, geeking out on you a little bit here, uh, if you've ever done any study on etymology, on what, what names actually mean, uh, my name graciously means, my parents did this, you know, just so you can commend this to them, my name means hill of broom straw, apparently, um, my full name is Hill of, is is um, this uh, Hill of Broomstraw added to the House of Strength. So there's kind of some there's kind of some like irony there, but also that you see the, the hand of God at work in that as well. But yet at the same time, your names actually represented something about you, who you were, your character. It represented you, and so when anytime the scriptures refer to God's name, it is. It is just another way of saying God's character, a representation of his nature. And so here in this passage, it says, for the hallowing of God's name, that God's name in the life of the believer, there is a personal regard for God to be treated as holy and uncommon as he really is in their own life, through their own personal obedience and regard for him, but also that that regard swells to a desire for a complete acknowledgement of God to be known and treated as such. So what does that mean? That means that your identity as a child of God is meant to lead to a regard for your own personal obedience. And that regard for personal obedience is meant to swell for the acknowledgement and the praise and the regard of all people in this world. So your praise is meant to lead you to obedience, and that obedience is meant to des bring desirous to bring others into that as well. And so that, that personal regard for God's name 
is always meant to bring others into another, a complete desire. So there's a desire for God's name to be made much of in your own personal life. And as a result of such, it is a desire for God's name and his character to be regarded in a holistic sense in every area that he has dominion in. And so we see this. Intimacy wrought in the gospel produces praise and a longing for more praise. This is the heart cry of a Christian. May you, Father, be acknowledged as God in me and in all as holy and uncommon, as nothing common, yet something set apart and holy. This is what Jesus is calling us to. The intimacy that produces obedience and a desire for more to be brought in to such obedience. And so we see how our identity as children of God leads us into our worship of God and our worship of God leads us into a desire for the mission of God to bring others into the worship of God. Bonhoeffer, um, you've heard him often quoted up here by Chris and several others, but he summarized this petition, this first petition, very well, I think, uh, as a request for God to protect the gospel from being obscured and profaned by false doctrine and unholiness of living and to make known his holy name to the disciples in Jesus Christ. And so, encapsulated in this first petition you see the intimacy God calls us to and also the desire for the gospel to be made known through us and in this world. And that leads us to number two, the second thing that is produced uh, in the life of a kingdom uh, follower, uh, the identity and marker of kingdom people, and that is a longing for kingdom prevalence as the hope of all things. Now, believe it or not, the word prevail doesn't have, uh, doesn't have the ints tense anymore. Uh, so prevalence, it, it's an archaic use anymore, so it's kind of been dropped. And this prevalence has been used uh, ever since for a myriad of different things. So the semantic range of the meaning of what prevalence means can be all over the place. But what we're seeing and what we see in this passage is there's a longing from the people of God for his kingdom to prevail and grow and advance as the hope of all things. So that's what I mean by longing for a kingdom prevalence, for it to prevail, for it to advance, for it to annex everything opposed to God's goodness in this world. And that means the hope of every single thing. And this is the hinge point of this passage. This is where the first... And second, and uh, excuse me, this is where the uh, second and third petitions meet in practical application. It is where the regard for God's holy name is applied completely to God's creation. And so, as Psalm 103, verses 17 through 22 suggest, it is when God's name and God's rule is acknowledged and blessed in all places of his dominion. And so the desire for the kingdom child, the son of the kingdom, is that God's name be regarded and God's rule be blessed and acknowledged in all places of his dominion. And so what is meant 
by kingdom here. What is meant, we sing about the kingdom, we read about the kingdom. Again, it's the main point of Jesus' teaching. It's the main point of Matthew. What is meant by the kingdom here? And so I want to do briefly, if you'll humor me, a really quick survey of the thread of kingdom. And this is by no means can I touch on this completely because you can write books on this. But we're going to do just a quick flyover of this understanding of the kingdom as displayed throughout the scriptures, throughout the whole thing. Because again, Jesus is fulfilling something, right, in his teaching. The scriptures depict God's promises as a kingdom. So all of God's promises are fulfilled and tied to a kingdom. And, where God, and they were tied to God's people being in God's place under his authority. That was the understanding or the paradigm of the kingdom in the scriptures. God's people in God's place under his authority. And his promises were always tied to this kingdom. So you see a promise of a king initiated in Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob is blessing uh, the tribes, the sons, right? His blessing of Judah specifically, whom would be the descendant of Jesus. It says, he says this, Judah, he says that rule, a scepter will not depart from Judah, and to him shall be the obedience of all people. So even from the first book of the Bible, you see this promise of one who will rule from Judah, whom, whose rule and obedience will be the, the obedience of all peoples. Uh, second, Numbers chapter 24, verses 7 and 17, as God's people have been now uh, gone through the Exodus and left Egypt and now are on the way to the Promised Land, you have um, a prophet named Balaam who was actually hired to curse God's people and yet he goes up to the mountain to curse God's people, and God says, no, 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 you're not going to curse my people. You're actually going to bless them. And in one of his blessings, he alludes to this, and you can read this in Numbers chapter 24. He's, he alludes to a in this blessing that they, out of Jacob there will come a high king who will arise out of Israel, and his seed, or the ability to multiply disciples and make much of his blessing in all these ways would be in many waters. And so again, you see in Numbers chapter 20, 24, this, this blessing and this promise of a king and a kingdom. Move on into the historic books and the, the kingdom narratives. You see David, the promise of an everlasting kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. God gives David a promise. David wants to build a house for God, right? God says, no, you've, you've, you're a man of war. You, you, have, you have much blood on your hands, but then I will give you, I'm going to give you a promise. And this promise is fulfilled in some ways with Solomon, but it's obvious this is looking beyond Solomon to someone who will be like Solomon, but even greater. And he says, I promise that I will give you a king from your lineage who will be not only your son, but my son, and he will build me a house. He will build me a house. And so there's this kingdom, he says, and your son will sit on this throne, and his reign and his rule will be an everlasting dominion. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see this in the promise to David. 
You see this uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, the promise that this king will be born of a virgin, and he will, be, he will overheat him. He will have the government and administration of all justice and righteousness, and, and he's called the Prince of Peace here. And he will reign upon the throne of his father David forever. So he will be a governor of peace. He will reign in justice and peace. And then you see the promise fulfilled in Jesus as king forever in Luke chapter 1 verses 32 through 33. And I'm going to read this. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So again... It is fulfilled, this promise of the kingdom and the king is fulfilled in Jesus. And the gospel announces the king is here. So the promise is now realized in the gospel. Jesus saying in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 after his baptism in the Jordan, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. Come the good news of the arrival of the kingdom that you've looked for throughout all your days, is now being realized in the way you receive that, the way you become a part of that, the way you are brought into that is through repentance, turning away from yourself and believing in me as the king, as the king, submitting to his reign and his rule as the one and only uh, hope. Also, we see in Matthew 28, Jesus' last words before he ascends into heaven, that there is a promise that this gospel of the kingdom is to be proclaimed among all peoples, among all nations. He says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, and then the king's decree, go and make disciples of all people. Go and make disciples of all people. And so the king was one promised the king has come and the king has decreed that we go and make disciples. And then lastly, there's a promise of a kingdom to come. That he will again come and he will fully redeem all of his creation. And all things will be subject to his reign and rule. And all righteousness will be established. And so he says to those whom have followed after him. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So this promise of the king is the kingdom of God. And so when anytime you speak about the kingdom of God, what is being said? That redemption is being realized, that God's plan from all time to take what has been tainted by sin and brokenness and to be restored is being realized now in the establishment of his king. And so while this kingdom is a current reality, because why? Jesus has come, right? He has already come. He is already seated at the right hand of God. He already has defeated death and sin. Yet it's also a coming reality because there is a future expectation for this king. Although now the enemy has been defeated, his guerrilla warfare still is at work among us. Sin and brokenness still wage war within us, yet they've already been defeated. But there will be a day where the, the king will come and he will fully 
exercise his rule and his power over these things. And this is the hope of the children of God. He says, it is the, it is the great, your father in heaven is, is privileged. He is, he, is, he, he is joyous in giving you the kingdom. He says that it is the inheritance now of the children of God. That they will inherit this kingdom. As just as royalty inherits a, their, a kingdom of their forefathers, so too will the children of God inherit the kingdom of God. And all of God's promises and all of restoration and every longing and restlessness that we yearn for for righteousness is fulfilled in this. So what does that mean in this prayer? Now that we have a framework of understanding the kingdom, what does it mean to long for the kingdom to come? This is the petition that God's kingdom would come, and it is a plea for God to come conquer and annex every territory presently inherited, excuse me, inhabited by sin and evil. So it's, it is a yearning and a plea for that to be realized here where I am. For that to be realized in this heart that has too much sin and dominion over its own life. For that justice and reign of Jesus will be made right, realized here in our day where so much injustice reigns and rules still. And so it is a desire for, the, for hope realized is what the kingdom is. So the plea to say kingdom come is to say Jesus come and make hope realized on this earth as you have promised it will be one day. And as one commentator says this, it is a petition for Jesus to return, to raise the dead, to change the corruptible into the incorruptible, to finalize his victory over death, and to grant his kingdom to his transformed and resurrected people. When believers pray this prayer, they pray for the success of the gospel as an all-inclusive missionary prayer. So what do you do when you long for this kingdom? You long for the gospel's work in our world. You long for the success of the gospel among you and through you in this world. It is an all-inclusive missionary prayer. And so what does this mean for us? I think it's encapsulated in the picture of a herald. If you're familiar with, again, geeking out on you a little bit. Um, if you are familiar with the historic understanding of what a herald was, not by like the man herald, you know, like the name H-A-R. But a herald was someone who what? He was a servant of the king that announced through his voice the decrees of the king. A herald was the one that proclaimed a message or paved the way for the, a promised event. And so anytime you see in the scriptures this word proclaimed or preached, it is the word herald. So when you speak the gospel, this is the word picture of what is meant to be done. You are heralding something. You are responsible for publicizing the king's law and the penalty of, his diso of disobedience to such. And so such is the position of the Christ follower, the Christian, the son of God, the child of God, to proclaim the gospel to herald the good news and announce that our king is here 
and his favor is the hope of all things. So that is what this means for us. We labor and in, our, in our longing for the gospel to have its way, for the good news to advance and for it to be successful in our day and through us. This is what it means to be a son of the kingdom. Thirdly, specifically in our application of such things, it leads us to this, a specific application of kingdom dependence in our everyday life. Specific application of kingdom dependence in everyday life. If this news is true, that this king has come and he has truly defeated everything contrary to God's will, if he is truly Lord of all things in heaven and earth, then this must, it must rule and rule over and be at the center of everything we do in our everyday life. And so longing for the coming kingdom empowers us to live faithfully where we are now because it prevents us from being too focused on the present with undue concern as it reminds us that God's work is not finished and that the best of the gospel realizations are still yet to come. And so as one, one author wrote that I read recently, that so we bring every concern to him. And this is completely different from anxiety or any other, uh, or any, any other kind of um, undue concern because rather than, he says it this way, and I'm going to probably butcher this, but he says, rather than wring our hands, we fold them, and rather than pace the floor, we, we hit the floor on our, on our knees. And so such is the approach to all of life, is, a, is, is being subject and submissive to our king in all things as the center and reigning over all things. And so, as, as so many of other have said beforehand, this leads us to a cautious optimism in everything that we do, right? Knowing that in any age and in any circumstance, this has dominion, this has direct application, this has meaning and substance wherever we are. And so we can approach life in a humble dependence and with a humble uh, optimism as well. To see all of life as through this lens of the gospel and the kingdom. So it prevents us from being too focused on the present. And yet it's not that we're, we're so heavenly minded we're not any earthly good if you've heard that. But because we're heavenly minded we are good for the, we're earthly good, right? We're good where we are because we know that this is not all there is. So we labor here because there's more. God wants to do and he's promised he will do so this leads us to view all of life and all of our human need as subject to the reality of God and our total dependence on him this is what Jesus gets to in the last three petitions he says in the first one what give us our daily bread so what is daily bread a picture of it's a picture of our physical provisions what is the thing that we need for life every day, our physical need? It is a request and an acknowledgement of our need and our dependence upon our Heavenly Father for our daily provisions and our trust that those physical needs are met in Him. So at, our, at its very core, the, that our physical needs, it's a request 
and a dependence and an acknowledgement that these things come, that our sustaining, that everything that sustains us for life this day comes from the hand of a gracious Father. And so we acknowledge that even our very life and the food that we take is itself subject to our King. And the second petition is what? To give us what? Forgiveness. Forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This is the request that acknowledges that we need spiritual provisions, that we need forgiveness because there is debt in our life. And not financial debt, but moral debt. We are guilty because none of us are righteous. And yet God, again, is holy. And in order to be with a holy God, we are at odds with Him unless something is done Unless he initiates because we are helpless in our state to fix ourselves. You ever seen anything broken fix itself? It doesn't work very well. Sin taints all that we are because it separates from a holy God. And yet this is a request for a removal of such things that divide in order that that may be realized. It's a request rooted in an awareness for our daily need of mercy to remove and forgive our sins and it's also, if you read in verse 14 and 15, it is a desire that that mercy may be manifest through us to others. That it may correspond that our mercy may correspond to his mercy. That our forgiveness now would correspond to the forgiveness that we have received. As Jesus said, he who loves much has been forgiven much. He who forgives is the one who knows they've been forgiven much. And so the desire is a desire for a right relationship with God through forgiveness and yet a desire that his mercy and his nature and his character would be taken upon us in the way we relate to others in this world as well. And so this is a desire rooted in an awareness for our daily need of mercy. The third one is what? A request, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a request for deliverance. It's a request for moral provisions. It is a request that is rooted in the, the awareness that our remaining weakness still exists. That evil still has its way upon us. That it's, our hearts are still bent towards sin and unrighteousness. And that our tendencies to sin continue to pull us away from the desire and the fulfillment of the kingdom in our own life. And so this is a desire. This is a plea for God to protect and keep us from the evil still at work in our own life, in our own heart. And rescue us from that which we are helpless to combat on our own. Satan is defeated. Again, he is, he is a, now a guerrilla ruler, right? He has no dominion. He exercises his, if you read in Matthew 13, it even says that he goes and he does things. He sows weeds or tears among the wheat in the night. He's a coward, right? He's doing it behind the scenes in subtle ways. So he's not going to make much of himself. He's going to discreetly do these things. And yet at the same time, he is still too powerful for you and I. So we need in our own acknowledgement for our own heart and life 
and our own sinful tendencies, we also, in the midst of our own trials and circumstances, need deliverance from the one who is too strong for us. So this is both a prayer for God to keep us from temptation and a God to deliver us, rescue us, sustain us, and protect us in the very midst of those seasons as well. Because we are helpless to combat these things on our own. And so, physical, spiritual, moral provisions are all found in a humble dependence upon the king. So this is the way the kingdom works itself out in our life. And so I find, here's what I find in my own heart, my own life, and perhaps this is you as well. Is perhaps the greatest indicator of my disobedience to, to the Father is where there is a lacking of dependence. There is a lack of dependence in the way I seek the Lord through His Word, through community with His people, but an even greater indicator in my own life of disobedience and a lack of active dependence is prayerlessness. Because prayer is active dependence. Prayer is active dependence. That's why it's no coincidence that this is a prayer, right? There's no no coincidence that Jesus is teaching these things conched in a prayer itself. So I think J.C. Ryle, who better than me in in all things I've read, says that you may be very sure men fall in private before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they are backslide. They backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Prayer is one of the most common marks of the elect of God. It is as much a part of their new nature to pray as it is of a child to cry. They see their need of mercy and grace. They feel their emptiness and weakness. They cannot do otherwise than they do. They must pray, he says. And so I see no greater mark of my lack of dependence, my lack of kingdom-mindedness in my own life than a lack of dependence through prayer. And so I think it's, it's kind of appropriate that he says here, um, he gives the, the picture of uh, a new nature is like that of a child. That it is the nature for us to pray just as much as it is for a child to pray because Jesus taught this. That to enter into the kingdom, is to, the way to enter in is, is in what way? As a child. What does a child do? Complete and utter dependence. And also, there is no holding back, right? They say what they need. They say what they want. They are completely dependent. And so just as new graces, I believe, are realized in the different season of your life, God is showing me a deeper picture of this in my seven-month-old. Right now, she, you know, it's, it's both a joy and privilege because you get to show them everything good in Christ and everything good in the, in the world, and yet it's a scary, terrifying thing at the same time because suddenly you realize that they're completely dependent upon you for everything good in their life, you know? And both of those things are intention, and yet at the same, and, and now even more so when you're when you are um, 
when you're actually fulfilling their needs, you have to constantly be watching them because now she's pulling up on everything and she's going to fall and bump her head every five seconds. So I've like got to find a way to do what I need to do, but also kind of like, you know, be catching everything here and there. And yet, when she needs something, what does she do? She cries. And boy, does she cry when she needs it. But she's, when she needs something, she crawls up to us in a utter dependence and a request for everything that she needs. He says, if you truly want to be of the kingdom, this is the way you must approach God. This is the way you must come to me with a complete destitution and understanding that you need me. A complete laid open in an, in an acknowledgement of emptiness and weakness and knowledge that you cannot do anything otherwise. This is what it means to enter in and to live in the midst of the kingdom. Because there is no one bold enough to climb into the lap of the king than what? A child. So this is what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. This is the identity Christ has called us into and so the model prayer helps us to be reminded that every good thing comes from God as we long for the coming of his kingdom and render the praise due to his name. And so as the worship team returns, I have this question for us all, this consideration, if you will, as one that is, I've had to evaluate in my own life. That Christians as citizens of the kingdom desire to make much of the gospel in their obedience and in mission. They herald the gospel of the kingdom as the hope of all things. They employ an act of dependence upon God as their father. The question then is this. If he is our king, then why do we put the gospel in the peripheral areas of our life and not central as absolutely central? Why are we not actively dependent upon him in our everyday life? And, the, and, the, and I'm, as I'm being reminded that I'm far less inclined to yearn for the things of the kingdom because there is a lack of dependence upon him. I think I've got this together. I think I can handle this. Or all the, th- the good things crowd out the great things in my schedule. And so, Christian non-believer, wherever you may be, may find yourself. How might Christ be calling you to submit to him in obedience as the king? Perhaps, maybe even for the first time this morning. Do you sense his call, his invitation into the kingdom? Will you submit your life to him and come to one with hands empty, acknowledging your full dependence upon him? our longings match that of our prayerful dependence upon our Father. And may we in every area of our life, dear Christ follower, may we acknowledge that He is the good King and He is near and our hope is bound up in Him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You that You are the sovereign King of all things. We thank you that nothing escapes your grasp, nothing escapes your notice. No season, no relationship, no circumstance is outside of your control. 
your authority in all things. And so would you hallow your name in us? Would you make the gospel successful in us, through us, in our day, that justice may truly reign in this earth? That every place of your dominion would bless and acknowledge you and begin it in our own hearts and our own homes, I pray. And so, God, if there's someone here tonight, and they don't, or this morning, rather, and they don't know you, that you've never been outside of the peripheral, that they've never felt this humble dependence, that they've never called upon you as Father, that they would simply receive the kingdom as a child and acknowledge their dependence upon you. Lord, I pray for LifePoint, that your church, that we as your citizens of the kingdom, God, would we be an outpost of the kingdom here in, our, here in Ozark, here in southwest Missouri, and in, in ultimately in the U.S. and among all the nations. Would your kingdom come upon us and upon this place through LifePoint, we pray. Would you have your way among us and in us that we may see you and your gospel succeed in our day. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.